Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Real spoilers powered by ReviewSTL.com. Warning the following film discussion will ruin the ending of any movie you haven't seen. Example. Bruce Willis is dead at the end of The Sixth Sense. See how I ruined it for you? Just like that. Here are a few more. Silent Breed is people! I am your father. Get it? Real spoilers. You've been warned. Broadcasting from the lush but not lavish studios located in the basement of the O'Keefe Institute for Advanced Films, Narcotube, this is Real Spoilers, episode 591 our continuing journey through the world of misbegotten sequels. Uh, this week we start with the the positive counterpart, the one that generated the need for substandard follow-ups. Uh, 1967's The Dirty Dozen. Uh, I guess uh, let's go around the virtual table and everyone can introduce themselves. This is Paul. This is Kevin. And this is Tom. Uh, Joe is out this week, so uh, frequent guest, sub- uh, filling in guy. We got to get a better title for you, Paul. <laughs> wow, filling in guy. I like that, Paul. Filling in guy Harris. <laughs> so, hi, Paul. How you been? It's hi. Been a while. I, I I do have one question for you. Do you know of incidents where they made the first the the first movie and it was so bad, and still they made a sequel? Uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Boom. That's for Joe. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. That's just, this is a good way to test to see if Joe listens. Ah, there we go. We won't tell him. Just wait. If he, if he hears that, he will be appalled, and there's no way he won't comment on it. So, there you go. I'm trying to think like really bad movies that generated sequels. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, what is that stupid ass movie that we didn't do the sequel, but Joe and I tried to watch it? Oh, Dream a Little Dream. Dream a Little Dream. <laughs> Paul, do you know anything about the Corey Feldman and Corey Haim movie, Dream a Little Dream? Never heard of it. It is horrendous, and it is yeah. so, so terribly bad. And then they made a sequel that just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, they didn't even try. Yeah. <laughs> did any did anyone see the first one? The first one is actually like pretty well loved by, uh, for the most part, women who were girls in a certain time span uh and so i mean it has a a a pretty solid following wow for whatever that's worth okay but it was brutal i mean that's i mean that script we did an episode on it and that script was like it made no sense it was like they took four different movies and just and just shuffled the pages together like a deck of cards it was mm. it was a mess well, 
Well, you should see the second one where uh, Corey Haim works at Condom Mania. For all your condom needs. <laughs> right. It's an entire store, like a record store size, an entire store called Condom Mania. Yes. So I don't know. I tried to ask Tom. No one else had ever heard. Paul, do you think, is that a real thing? Has there ever been a store like full of condoms the entire thing? I don't think so. No. I, yeah. All I it's could think re- of, and, and Paul will get this because uh, there's someone closer to my age on the show this week. Remember when SNL, the, fir- the first original cast, they had that sketch where uh, it was the Scotch tape store and all they yes. sold was Scotch tape? <laughs> <laughs> it's, As it's a matter the- of fact, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, SNL, uh, right after Fred Willard died, they reran the episode that he hosted and he was the owner of the Scotch Tape store. And so that sketch was on there. Oh. And uh, I think they actually did the bit like three times over the course of the next couple of years with other people in there. I think they did. And the only way that yeah. that store made money was when the other stores in the mall were going out of business. They had to tape up their going out of business <laughs> signs. And so they needed Scotch Tape from him. Man, that store would be making money like crazy right now. <laughs> it's, their t- it would. it's their time to shine. So, that and a put on your mask sign. Yes. Yeah. So uh, before we get into the movie, shameless plugs, don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts uh, or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Google, uh, wherever. Uh, be sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash real spoilers, where, uh, where you can like the page and join the group. Uh, you should probably join the group over. <laughs> that's better than the page. We're just going to put that out there. Like you can, them both. It's good to like the page. It's for good news to like the page, things, but, but for discussion. But if you would like to be involved, you're gonna you're gonna want the uh, you're gonna want the group. Well, the uh, the page is pretty much hot take city. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of accessible. So uh, <laughs> you can also uh, become a League of Show Shares member by sharing. An episode. People who were kind enough to share an episode this week are Librarian Cynthia, Chris Valls, Dustin at Nerds at Night Gaming, uh, Lane Levanway, Gabriel Lugo, Ralph Tribble, Brent Smith, Travis Tewitt, Chris Williams, Ron Johnson, Chris Magic Man, Tammy Sherman Powers, Heather Sachs, and Chris Sanders. So uh, thank you very much, guys. And check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash real spoilers, where for five bucks a month, you get all sorts of bonus content and you help out. And we greatly appreciate that. So uh, there, there is all that. Let's uh, let's dig into America's favorite war criminals, the Dirty Dozen. So I don't know about you guys, but this was a first time watch for me. Oh, I've seen this is probably (laughs) 21st watch for me. (laughs) Yeah, this this is probably the seventh or eighth time that I've I've seen it throughout my life. So for a while, this was one of those movies that if I was flicking around on TV and I came upon it, I had to watch to the end. I was wondering if this was like a TNT type thing, like they would just play this over and over again. This was a staple. Like I, I've talked before in the past about how like when I was when I was a kid, uh, like the local independent channel uh, locally was Channel 11 and they would show like comedies on Saturday. So you get Abbott and Costello. Mon Pa Kettle, Francis the Talking Mule, Martin and Lewis movies, stuff like that. And on Sunday was the more serious stuff, and you would get, that's where he, all the the war movies and westerns would live. And so the Dirty Dozen was a staple of Sunday afternoons for I'm sure stations similar to that nationwide for decades. 
Yeah, I you know I just I've never really been a fan of war movies. Like I'm sure there's tons I'm the of them. same. I've never I'm the same way, and and I and I chalk it up to to uh, the same thing for both of us, which yeah. is uh, we grew up in homes without without dads, <laughs> right? Like I consider these dad movies, right? Right? Yeah. Like your dad is the one that's supposed to watch all the World War II movies and the Saturday afternoon war, whatever. Like, right? So so I never had anyone show me or recommend, and I'm not trying to like sad violin it here or anything, but it's just you know my mom wasn't like on the weekends like hey let's watch the Dirty Dozen. She's right. like let's pop in the Little Mermaid again. You know it just right. was a completely different upbringing. A lot of so people don't I, know this. But it was around episode 200 where I taught Kevin how to shave. Yeah, it, you know, if you go back through the catalog, yeah, you know, a lot of surrogate fathers on the podcast. I will say that the Dirty Dozen fits in with three other movies as probably the best movies ever made about World War II, and they're not actually all traditional World War II movies like the Green Berets or or uh, Torah, 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 or Midway, or those kind of movies. Hold on. Well, let's start the countdown officially. Number three. <laughs> uh, I would say number three would be Kelly's Heroes. Okay. Which is a uh, Clint Eastwood movie in which he and Kelly Savalas, who's also in The Dirty Dozen, and uh, a bunch of misfits uh, during World War II, they have no motivation until they find out that there's a, a bunch of German gold in a town that they can go and get. And so they bring in Donald Sutherland and his uh, tank corps and Don Rickles as part of the cast. And, and, and they go off on this mission, not to try to win the war or get behind enemy lines for the cause, but to get the gold so that they can be rich. I've never seen that. Tom, you've never seen that. I've never seen it. No, I've oh. I've heard good things, and it came up in my research about this because you know the, uh, people think that it's it's kind of similar in tone to the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, um, Kelly's Heroes. Okay, uh, the other two. All right, so number two. Well, the other two are both <laughs> Prisoner of War, World War Two movies. Uh, one of which would be Stalag Seventeen. Uh, which, That's a great one. Which is an absolutely fantastic one with William Holden and uh, Otto Preminger and a, a cast of just great stage actors who had done it on stage who then do it in the movie. And it's about American GIs who are um, in a prisoner of war camp and uh, how they interact with each other and how they think that there's somebody in their own group who is ratting on them to the Germans. And it is, uh, it, it's brilliant and, and really well made. And then and it's a... It's. I just want to comment on that real quick. It's a, and it's a Billy Wilder movie. You don't normally think of Billy Wilder as oh. doing war movies, but I love Billy Wilder. It's a great one. It's yeah. one of his best. Yeah, it is. Okay. And coming in at number one is <laughs> The Great Escape. Okay. Another movie that has a hardcore group of men, including Charles Bronson, who's in The Dirty Dozen, uh, plus James Coburn, Steve McQueen in the most Steve mm-hmm. McQueen role he ever had. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Richard Attenborough is in there. Uh, James Garner is in there. David McCallum. Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance, yes. Um, it's just uh, phenomenal. Again, prisoner of war movie based on a true story about American, uh, or, or actually only a couple of Americans, mostly British officers who were all put in this one prison camp because they had escaped from other prison camps multiple times and gotten uh, recaptured. And so the Germans thought, we'll put them all in one incredibly high-tech 
for 1943 uh, <laughs> uh, prison camp, and we'll make sure that we hold on to them. Uh, let's just say the prisoners had other ideas. And yeah, it, yeah. It is fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you for the recommendations. I'll tell you what. So Paul and I have lunch every once in a while, or at least we did pre-pandemic, and he is a great resource for movies like that. If you need like a top five list or some kind of a, you know, we used to connect things like with the uh, uh, video recovery and all that when Dan was on the show, Paul is like an encyclopedia for related films. So I always appreciate that about having him on and talking with him. Thank you. But yeah, so uh, The Dirty Dozen, it's it's interesting because I mean, I mean this is a this is a great movie and it's a lot of fun, but it's also like these aren't good people that <laughs> they're they're not good people. Well, and even though they're killing Nazis, they're not they're not doing it in a good way. Like they're it's this these are war crimes that they're committing, right? Like it's really it's always really <laughs> hard with a movie like this because this is very similar to, and I'm going to use an example that is actually similar to this movie but uh if you've seen the suicide squad or suicide squad that's what this movie is what david ayer based basically built inspiration from to make suicide squad and in suicide squad you have a group of dc villains who are sent on a mission which is a suicide mission i mean it, it's this movie with dc characters and, and he admits it i mean it's fully known that well that's he's what... even attached to a reboot of the dirty dozen like right uh, he... wb has yeah supposedly hired him to develop that because that's what suicide squad is but so for listeners who may be younger or, you know my age have never seen this or you know surely more attached to the pop culture of the current day suicide squad is a very very much the same type of or the same premise and the problem that i have i mean that movie i think we all have gone on the record of not thinking it's very good <laughs> not so good. there's there's that but also it's very hard to root for when the protagonists are bad people because do you, you don't necessarily it's hard to root for them at least morally or ethically it's it's kind of like the lesser of two evils kind of thing um and so yeah i i totally get what you mean tom because i just in the same way i can't root for i think that was my main problem with the suicide squad and the harley quinn movie where it's like these are villains i want to root right. for batman i don't want to root for the bad guys and we're so, here you can root for them because it's nazis you know. Definitely. I mean, it's again, lesser of two evils. I mean, yeah, it's like they're bad people. But when you hear the list of the things they've done, I mean, some of them are just down. And the, th- the, the things they do throughout the movie, right? Like, I mean, it's a war crime to and to wear the other side's uniform and go behind enemy. Like, that's a war crime. That's true. I, I read this is the first time in on film that war crimes were presented in a positive manner. Yeah. Kevin, I'm curious. Do you feel that way about all the characters in Shawshank Redemption? You know, I haven't, I I love that movie and I haven't seen it in a long time, but I mean, but Andy Dufresne was framed, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely root for him because what about all the other characters, Morgan Freeman and the rest? What did Morgan Freeman do? I don't Remind know. He was in jail forever, 30 years. I'm trying but to he's also pay. I mean, but he also, if he was in jail for 30 years, at least he's kind of had to serve been, some time. These it's guys been just... for, it's <laughs> been forever since I've seen Shawshank. I thought uh, I thought Morgan Freeman was in there for like kind of a justifiable offense. And, you know, like in the way that Jim Brown's character, you're like, well, you're in there for killing somebody. But that guy had it coming. Right. Yeah. Like, clearly he was in there because he was black and they wanted to make an example of him or something, you know, like, I mean, that goes into a whole different issue. But I get what you mean, where it's like if it's self-defense, but they're 
you know, they throw them in there to yeah. Make I a point. will. I will say most prison movies always kind of make a point of having your main protagonist either be in there for something that you feel is justified, but it's still technically a crime, right. or they're innocent and wrongly convicted. Like they, you, you know, have like, to, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's your that's the only way that you can really sympathize. Otherwise, it's like you're rooting for a bunch of. I mean, like I will say that uh, the Telly Savalas character is just downright horrible. Like that yeah. is, I mean, you can't stand him. And I mean, hats off to him as an actor. Obviously, he plays a character that makes you hate him. And so, uh, Maggot. I mean, I'll remember that name. Uh, he he's he's just awful though. And like, I despise him. And then especially when you get to the end, and you're just you know kicking yourself for what he does. Um, but he's terrible. Like he raped and murdered women and then claimed that god had him do it like it's just despicable you can't root for him yeah and until the sequels what what's that well because not really they bring back telly savalas but he's playing a different character oh so they you, bring him back yeah yep. and so there's so we'll get into it in the next one there's a there's a made for tv sequel which is the sequel we'll be tackling but there's actually two more made for tv sequels <laughs> yeah that and they don't have lee marvin in them but instead they bring in telly savalas as a new character major Wright. Uh, and he's around for the next two movies. I see. I see. Because I'm like, I didn't remember him in, in the one that we watched. But yeah, geez. no, he's he's not in the one we'll be tackling. He's in the next two. But Got it. but but we'll get to there in in due time. So that's a teaser for the next one. I will say so. Since this was a first time watch, there are 13 main characters in this movie. Like, I'm not going to be able to keep these names straight. You know I think I mean? they like, do a pretty good job though of of helping you keep it keep them straight. You know what I mean? Like I. Um, I I think I mean the, with the dirty dozen themselves, I think there's what probably like six or seven that really that kind of stand out. Like you know, I Maggot, remember Franco, Franco, John Cassavetes, yeah, Posey, Maggot's terrible, yeah. Um, uh, Donald Sutherland is he Posey or who's Donald no Posey's Sutherland? the big giant guy. Oh, okay, that, Posey that is, looks, is uh, uh, Clint Walker, who was the star of the TV show Cheyenne, a western. Okay. Yeah, Posey's the one that if if Joe was on this episode, he'd be telling us how he should have played Superman. <laughs> that guy was huge. <laughs> and he looked like Superman. He would have made a great Superman. Donald Sutherland was Pinkley. Pinkley, that's it. Okay, that's I knew it, it was a P word. Okay. I kept joking when I was watching this with my wife that Posey should play Gaston. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He looks exactly like a real life Gaston. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I just it's it's hard for me because there's so many of them. And I'm talking about there's 13 main characters, the Dirty Dozen uh, plus the Lee Marvin character. But then you have um, Ernest Bornine and the guy from Cool Hand Luke. And I mean, you know, there's other main characters, too, but there's 13 of them that you follow. So yeah. for me, it's you very... Lee Marvin or Lee Marvin plays Reisman, but you have. The the guy that's helping him out the whole time, uh, Bauer, Bauer, yeah, and what's his, the character's name is like Bauer, Bowerin. Bowerman, Bowerin, yeah. So, so there's a yeah. lot of people to keep track of, but I think considering how many people there are to keep track of, like c- watching this c- compared with the next one, like in the in the next one at the end, they're showing people getting killed, and I'm like, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> you no, know, they I mean, I think the fact that so this movie and I know that this is probably more of an old timey reference than I can possibly tackle. But am I correct that most of the Dirty Dozen were names like they assembled an all star cast for this movie? At well, the time. no, you know, you know, the expression six of one half a dozen of another. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what this movie is. There are six of the dirty dozen who you know and you recognize and who actually have parts in this that matter. And the other okay. half dozen are just the filler guys who don't do much except, you know, they're kind of like the red shirts in Star Trek. They're along for the yeah. mission, but you know they're not coming home and you don't really get to learn their uh, their resume or, or much about them after that first scene where Reisman goes to the prison and, and, and finds out who all these guys are. But it's really Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, John Cassavetes, Trini Lopez, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, Clint Walker. Okay, that's seven. But um, but seven out of the 13, at least. I mean, in the next movie, it's like zero in one hand, a dozen in the other. I mean, yeah, I, but, I have but, no but, idea who. But, but you guys know every character in the Avengers. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, He's not I, wrong. I, he's not, he's not wrong, but there, yeah. there's a reason for that, though, too, I feel like. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but... I think this movie does a really good job of, of keeping you knowledgeable about who's who and like and like donald sutherland was not a known quantity like you only know you know he only sticks out to you now because you because he's had a you know a 50 plus year career but he was a no name at the time and bronson had been in a couple movies but he wasn't necessarily like i don't know that people were like flocking to charles bronson movies at this point well and this isn't a knock on the movie i just mean i've only seen it one time and there's 13 main characters like sure sure. it's just hard for me you guys have watched it your whole lives yeah i've i'm just it's hard for me to say oh yeah and then posey went here and then pinkerton and then whatever you know what i mean like i yeah (laughs) Well, I'll give you a little bit of background on a couple of these guys. Donald Sutherland okay. was, was was not a star at all. He was a beginning actor, and he was actually hired in this to have a very, very small role. He essentially was just going to be number two, which is, you know, he, they're made to count off at the beginning, and that's the number that they yeah. keep throughout the movie. Uh, and then there's the scene where, and I guess we'll get to the plot later on, but there's a scene where they go to the paratrooper uh, training place. and Where he impersonates the general. Yes, that originally was supposed to be something that the director gave to Charles Bronson. And Charles Bronson said to him, I, I, my character would not do this. He, he would not have the sense of humor that you need to make this scene work. And so Aldrich literally turned around and pointed to Donald Sutherland and said, you're the general. And because so he kind of did it like in the movie, right? So like in real life, yes. he, he it was a natural kind of a thing because he wasn't expecting to he didn't rehearse right. for it as much as you know yeah and because of the way he pulled off that scene particularly when he's uh, reviewing the troops and walking down and talking to the guy where are you from son yeah. madison city missouri never yeah. heard of it that that yeah. that that line right there because of that that made him enough of a star to get him the movie mash yeah that's that's amazing and that's what i was reading uh, and and he really to me is one of the standouts of this movie i mean charles bronson john cassavetes and and donald sutherland to me are the the big standouts i mean telly savalas yes i just hate that character so much but um but those are the really memorable ones and Donald Sutherland, you can tell, especially it's interesting knowing that he wasn't a name at the time. I mean, he has that it factor. He has the charisma. He's, he's got a way of drawing your eye in a scene. Yes. Even when he doesn't have lines. Like when he's, he's just, looking, just I yeah. sent you the screen capture of him when he's in a yeah. crowd of the other dirty dozen. Like there's a bunch of them on the screen, but his face, and I know that we know him, but still there's something about his face that at the time they wouldn't have been focusing on him necessarily because he was a nobody, but he just jumps out at you. He, yeah. he, he has that quality. And that's, I think the difference between an, an actor, which nothing wrong with that, but there's an actor and there's movie stars. Right. And Donald 
Charles and, Sutherland has that factor. Yeah, and he like it's he's also a nice person for the audience to kind of glob onto, or at least for cert- for certain members of the audience, I think, because the premise of this movie, as much as I enjoy this movie, it's pretty ridiculous, right? And and he kind of has this look throughout the movie of like, what are we doing? Like this is like this like like this is a dumb idea for them to be trusting us to do this. Like he just kind of has this incredulous, you know, like this is a joke and I'll go along as long as you let me, but I, I, I have no hopes for any of this. And I think right. that there's probably a lot of people that come to this movie, especially back then um, that were maybe skeptical of the premise that he's kind of their guy, you know? Yeah, definitely. I agree. So yeah, I really like that. So, um, We'll get into the plot here. So uh, Major Reisman is played by Lee Marvin, and it starts off with in the prison, and they're going to hang a guy. And so in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, geez, too bad they didn't come up with that Dirty Dozen mission like five minutes earlier. Right. <laughs> I got the raw end of the deal, right? Whoops. <laughs> they, they they hang this guy that for, I think, for murder, was it right? I mean, it doesn't really matter, but he, he committed some kind of crime. I think it was murder. Uh, and then Ernest Bornine brings in uh, Lee Marvin, and he says, hey, we've got this top secret mission called Project Amnesty, and uh, we w- this is the uh, we're going to go in the day before D-Day, and we're going to take out all these high-ranking Nazi officers so that you know they won't be able to command their forces and it will just make it a lot easier for the allied forces and so that's kind of where the premise comes in where they say well it's a suicide mission we don't want to send a bunch of our guys I mean they're most likely going to die so let's take a bunch of people on death row or that have 20 or 30 years hard labor and that's where the dirty dozen come in Um, they don't have that nickname yet which I always thought was I didn't realize that there was a plot point to give them the nickname. I figured it was like, oh, they're dirty. Right. Like they're, they're bad people, you know. Um, but so they go to the jail and they find all these guys and, and they do, they line them all up and they say, you know, one, they, like Paul said, they go one, two, three, they number off and you learn who each character is and what they're in there for. Um, so you get a really, I mean, it's really easy. It's, it's, they set it up. They tell you right away who each character is, what they were in prison for, so you understand the character, um, and you can, I guess, like or not like them accordingly. Like the difference between someone that has twenty years of hard labor, or like the um, is it Jim Brown? Is that the black character? Yeah, Jim Brown. He Jim was Brown. a he was a football player. Yeah, he was, the, he, he was actually probably one of the more famous people in the movie at the time well, I, yeah i was reading that he was is considered one of the greatest football players of all time and he was supposed to go back to training for the new season and he the they said ran we're long. gonna we're gonna <laughs> fine you if you don't come back and he's like okay and then he did a press conference and announced his retirement yeah. <laughs> he kept working yeah. on the movie like what? <laughs> wow what a move yeah that was, <laughs> well, that, was it, that was art modell who was the owner of the cleveland browns then and later moved them uh, to Baltimore and then snuck out of Baltimore in the middle of the night to go to Indianapolis. That's the guy, the kind of a renowned uh, NFL owner. And Jim Brown wasn't just a really good football player. He is considered one of the top five football players of all time. He was setting rushing records. He led the Browns to, there was no Super Bowl yet, but it was the NFL championship in 1964. And uh, this was his second movie. And then he went on to make a bunch of others that were, you know, in the black exploitation era, we're pretty well regarded. Right. Yeah. And, and I know people like tell the story like, I mean, it was a baller move and I'm not trying to take that away from him. 
But it's not like walking away from the NFL today. Like it's, I mean, they weren't making what they make now. They weren't making what they make, and I'm sure he's like, I'm tr- closer to the end of my career than the beginning, and I've got a movie career, and I can go make these movies, and I and and I want to strike while the iron's hot, and this is my long term goal. Like it's not like he was he was not making tens of millions of dollars to play football at this it's point. Like, it, it's like The Rock retiring from wrestling the rock could have kept wrestling but he's like i want right. to be a movie star and it'd, it'd be more like the rock retiring from like extreme wrestling right like not wwe wrestling yeah <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so so i mean like you said i mean they do make it clear though they set up all the characters uh right away they set up that uh riceman uh the lee marvin character is a badass uh he's not someone to be messed with um franco played by john cassavetes uh he pulls him aside because franco's mouthing off and he basically says you're gonna listen to me or i'm gonna put a boot in your face or something and uh and so he keeps mouthing or no and then he tries to attack him from behind and lee marvin flips him over and starts stomping on his face like he instantly makes an example out of this guy um so you know they set it up right there showing that even though oh and i will say lee marvin looks like he's about 60 in this movie i read that he was like 43 or something so i mean he's He's an old looking forties, but yeah, he seems like like an old aged like he's he's seen some stuff, and maybe at that time you get in the army young, so maybe he I'm sure he had experience, but my point is like to me he seemed like this grizzled old veteran, but well, they made the character in the book at the uh, Riceman's a captain and yeah. in the movie they made him a major because because of Lee Marvin's age well right, were, and that's what yeah. I read too, but then they were like because he was forty something and I'm like, crap, he was in his forties. Yeah, You know, what's amazing about Lee Marvin is just a couple of years before this, he had won an Oscar for a musical called Cat Baloo. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that prior to this? I thought that was after this. I think it was before this. Oh, okay. I, I know he's in that horrible Clint Eastwood musical, Paint Your Wagon. Yeah. Horrible. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, Baloo was two years before this. It was 65. I was thinking of Paint Your Wagon, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, and so I'm sure, Tom, if since you did your research as well on this movie, you knew that he was an alcoholic and was oh, perpetually coming to the set drunk and yeah. uh, making it difficult for the other actors. I mean, to his credit, I, I mean, I think he did a great job in this movie. I think he's he's great in it. Um, so I wouldn't have known if I didn't read about it, but it did cause some trouble uh, enough so that Charles Bronson threatened to punch him because he kept holding things up in production. Yeah. I don't blame him. Yeah. By the way, whatever whatever you do in your entire life, don't make Charles Bronson mad. Well, I feel yeah. pretty safe that I won't be doing that now. <laughs> no, but I mean, in this era. Yeah, totally. If Charles, if you're walking along and Charles Bronson bumps into you and says, what's your problem? You say, nothing, and I'm leaving. Go. <laughs> Have you seen that guy who makes Charles Bronson movies now? No. His name's like Richard Brodsky or something like that and he's he he's a Charles Bronson lookalike and sweet baby Jesus does this guy look just like Charles Bronson really? I don't yeah. think he speaks English so they have to dub his voice and it's really weird they're very like low budget indie like you know straight holy crap to, are you talking about so there's this movie Death Kiss from 2018 that's him, that's him. holy crap 
<laughs> yeah. He looks As, just like him. I mean, it's frightening. I showed it to my wife. I'm like, get a load of this guy. And she was just like, he right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. 2018 wow. death, now I'm looking death at kiss. It. And it's He's under- got a Western that came out a, a year ago or so, too. And it's like, yeah, the dude, like. If he could sound like Charles Bronson, they would be rebo- rebooting Death Wish. Yeah, Robert Bronzy as Charles as Charles Bronson, and in the trailer on Joe Blow it says Death Kiss Charles Bronson look like movie. <laughs> wow, it's frightening. That is positively that is, frightening. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so anyway, uh, the first thing that he has them do, unless there's something that I'm, you know, he goes to each one or to a few of them, and you know, you get to know the characters, the main ones, like like Paul mentioned. You know, he goes to the main characters that you really are supposed to get to know, and uh, talks to them about their sentences, and and convinces them to join him uh you know it's always questionable whether or not uh these guys are going to get amnesty for for going on this mission lee marvin when he's talking to ernest borgnine he's he's like if i'm gonna do this and these guys are gonna have my back like you need to commute their sentences and they keep tiptoeing around it and he says oh well if if any of them shows exemplary valor or whatever wording he uses, then we can determine that they'll get it. And so he Lee Marvin keeps trying to talk him into no, you need to clear these guys so they have something to fight for. Um, and so he tries to convince them and says, hey, I'm going to be able to commute your sentence. Just I need you to go on this mission. Uh, and so he enlists the Dirty Dozen and they go to their first thing is to build their own training camp. So what I didn't expect, you know, I'm thinking in this movie that they're going to enlist these guys and they're going to go off and fight Nazis. Like in my mind, that was the picture right. that I had for this movie. But really it's, that's like the last 30 minutes of the movie. And this is a two and a half hour movie. Actually, I think this, the middle part, I think is the best part of the movie in yeah. my opinion. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. I like the middle part. I actually really like the end too. I mean, and, and I, I liked this movie, um, but uh, I did not expect this part of it though. So, right. The, but what's really great is that this first act of the movie, once they get going, you know, in 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is, um, it's how you get to know the characters and care about them and they learn teamwork. So rather than just throw a bunch of, cause you're like put 12 prisoners together. How are they going to work as a team? How are they ever going to work together? But it's through, you know, building their own. I mean, you're talking about the fences and putting up the actual building, the barracks and, and everything. They, they have to build their training facility. Um, and so it's them and they go through a montage and there's some funny moments. Uh, and, uh, there's also military police that are helping the unit run this place. Um, but they work together, do their little training montage thing. Um, what, what, what's important that I'm missing here? What happens that, uh, oh, the dirty dozen, right? So yeah, they, they, they go on their shaving strike because they're making them shave with cold water. Yeah. Which is one of the first things I taught you when I when I taught you to shave, Kevin, was you can to tell, use the yeah. hot water. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Franco tries to escape, and so all these guys, I mean, these guys know because of what uh, Reisman sets up. He says, if you guys try to escape, there's basically going to be there's basically going to be no trial. You're going to be shot on sight. Uh, you know, you guys, your only chance of getting becoming free men or, or getting your sentences commuted or to do the mission do it all the way so don't try to escape or if the uh, there's one other the movie doesn't really spell this out there is one other way to get their sentence commuted is if they were to befriend the president oh. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the key things in this movie is that Reisman makes them all a unit right who have to depend on each other because if one of them screws up 
You know, if one of them escapes or tries to escape, if one of them screws up, if one of them doesn't do what they're told to do, they all go back. The whole deal is off for everybody. So now yeah. the other 11 guys have to watch every single person, particularly John Cassavetes. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so that's what I was getting into. So Franco tries to escape, and so a couple of the guys follow him out because they don't want him screwing it up for all of them. So they go out and they stop him. And I love that there's just like the slapping match that happens. So Franco <laughs> has the wire cutters because the whole place, again, is surrounded by the wire fence they put up. And so he's going to cut through it, and every time he goes up, it's Jim Brown and – is it Charles Bronson? Who's the, yes. Okay, so it's Jim Brown and Charles Bronson follow him out, and every time he picks up the pliers, they smack it out of his hand and then once he keeps doing it and like i didn't expect it to keep going he picks them up like for a third fourth time and they just slap him in the face and they keep doing it um and so i love and then there's i think this is where they first set up the reoccurring joke like when anyone in this movie gets beat up by somebody they slipped on soap yeah this is <laughs> yeah so i just there's there's a lot of comical moments in this movie and they're not played up i mean and it was definitely a different time but you don't you never take it as like, oh, wow, they just abuse someone and you feel sorry for them. So it's like a mean type of a, you know, this isn't a what code red from a few good men or whatever. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like this is it's more playful. And these are prisoners for one and two. They're trying to do bad stuff like escape and get them all screwed over. So anyway, so they do that. And then he goes on his shaving strike. He, they say, why do you why do the military police and the officers get warm water and we get cold water? And so then they say, okay, well, you guys can can uh, eat your K rations and you're, you know, you're not going to be able to what he just like basically takes everything else away from them as well. And so they get their nickname, the Dirty Dozen, which was kind of a tongue in cheek, I don't know, kind of a cheesy moment where the guy is like, I guess you Dirty Dozen, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> when they say the name, the title of the movie in a movie, you know, like it's always that's funny. the first thing i thought of too was that youtube video where it's like every time they say the name of a movie in a movie yeah yeah so it was this was very much that like you know almost like winking at the camera he should have turned to the camera and said dirty dozen but anyway so that's Am how I they right that's how they get their name is they don't they don't shave and they don't shower and so. that's also the first time when lee marvin realizes these guys are acting as a group because they're saying we we're not going to do this. Not I'm not going to do this. That's true. Yeah, he he's got the line. I think it was about Maggot where he's like, that guy's been shaving with cold water since he was 15. Like he doesn't even care. <laughs> yeah, that right. We're making him shave with cold water, but he's still going to put up a stink because because his his buddies are doing it. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. So that's what I like about it is that even though the movie gets off to kind of a slow start as far as and I say that not that it's not interesting, but if you were getting ready to like, let's pop this movie in and let's go fight the Nazis like you don't get that for two hours. So but what they do is they really build up the teamwork and they make you uh, understand the characters motivations. They get you to care about them and you believe organically that they are growing as a team. So I really like that you get to see all of that. Um, and yeah, then they they really utilize their two and a half hour runtime in terms of like it's not slow. It like it it lets you I don't know, almost feel a part of the team like you kind of marinated in it in a good way. There's that. certain movies that need that, right? Like, right. Like if if you rush through a movie and it just seems like a bunch of vignettes or something, you don't ever yeah. find that connection. And you may which have you some... will see in the next one, right? Which, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, right. which is 90 minutes. 
and it and and it feels longer because it's like it's it's just it's one of those I call an and then movie. Like there's right. no through right. line. It's just and then this happened and it, then this happened. Exactly, exactly. So they do a really good job of the pacing and the character development and everything. And I think that's there's no question as to why it's considered such a great movie. Um, you know, we didn't mention uh, just a, a small aside is that there's a psychologist uh, in the camp and he analyzes each of the guys and basically tells Reisman <laughs> that these guys are all dangerous. And yeah, and like you, I don't know what you're going to do with these guys. They're they're all killers. And, and especially Maggot, you need to watch out for. For, which is clear foreshadowing for what's to come. That word association scene with Charles Bronson is great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I laughed out loud during that. Seriously, as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, that's what we're doing. Like, I could appreciate the humor in an otherwise serious movie, right? Like, the right. subject matter is pretty serious. But yeah, when he keeps going off on the baseball terms and, and the psychologist is like, you're concentrating on one thing. I want you to, you know, adapt. I want you to, you know, the first thing that comes to your head and he's like okay and that's what yeah how did you uh, say chicago i was thinking of chicago I, that's <laughs> what i was thinking of yeah but it's, but it's one of those things where the humor works because it's like if they had done that with another character i don't think it would have been funny no you know what i mean like it yeah he's, he's it would have been a joke for the sake of a joke where like i totally believe that's what Charles Bronson's character would have done. Yeah, you right. know? yeah, because he everything's under delivered. That's that's yeah. his character. It's it's, it's so deadpan. Oh yeah, my god, <laughs> it's great. And I will, you know, I I'm gonna have to admit. I told Tom this earlier. I I don't think I've ever seen a Charles Bronson movie before. I think this is my first one. Well, you will when you see The Great Escape. You will have seen two. There you go. Yes. I mean, I know him. It's not like I don't know who Charles Bronson right. is. I mean, but I've seen the Death Wish remake we reviewed with Bruce Willis. I've never seen the original, uh, which he's, of course, known for doing, uh, what, 37 Death Wish movies, I think? Yeah. There were there were five Death Wish movies. <laughs> so. Each one, each there, there are five Death Wish movies, uh, each one increasingly more racist than the last. Right. <laughs> That's what I hear, so. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's, I mean, they're, they're. I mean, in their own way that you you can kind of turn off your head and like enjoy him shooting people, but like it gets pretty ugly by the end. Yeah, yeah I think you guys. I mean, maybe even brought it up during our Rambo discussion because of Rambo going down to Mexico and right in the last one where he kills nothing but Mexicans. Yeah. yeah. So I I'm pretty sure Joe brought that up the comparison. So. Yeah. So basically, uh, they have to go to this new camp, this uh, parachute training camp ran by uh, Reisman. Reisman is always in conflict with this guy named Colonel Breed, who's just a total a-hole, um, you know, thinks he's hot stuff type of colonel. And uh, they have to go to this parachuting uh, training facility. Can I just inject a little something about Breed? Of course, sure. Played by Robert Ryan, who had also done a bunch of westerns and was in a, a seminal uh, – Sam Peckinpah movie called The Wild Bunch. Oh, oh sure. Bunch. Now that one I know. Tom Tom has also been my uh, the gatekeeper of westerns that I should see. So he's yeah. I'm a, whenever whenever there's a western on uh, uh, like a great western on sale <laughs> on Vudu for like five bucks, I'm like, oh, you here's Rio Bravo. You gotta watch this one. Here's <laughs> yeah. Red River. Like John Wayne could act. Here's the proof. You oh know? yeah, John Wayne's John Wayne for a reason for sure. Uh, yeah. Personal, you know 
things aside. Right. So, so they go to this school and this is the scene where Tom was mentioning when he tells this, or I'm sorry, that Paul was telling the story about how Donald Sutherland had to take over and pose as a general. Now I did, I didn't really understand this and maybe it's just because I've only seen the movie once and I didn't want to go back and rewind it because I had two of these things to watch, but why were they expecting a general? I didn't really understand that part. So uh, the way I interpret it was that they were going to train, but they, they wouldn't tell them who was coming to train. Mm. And so I, I think they assumed that they were going to get a big wig in there and that it was a general because that's why when they're trying to figure out who they are and they realize that none of them are wearing dog tags Mm -hmm. because this is a a beyond top secret mission and so they don't want you know if they they're going to deny these guys ever existed if they get caught right and so um they don't want anyone to know that this is going on so they they the cover story was that these big wigs are coming in leave them alone yeah uh, is that your take as well, Paul? Yeah. Earlier, somebody had said, you know, you got to go train at Colonel Breed at uh, Colonel Breed's place, and he said, oh, I don't want anybody to mess with us. This is Lee Marvin saying, I don't want anybody to mess with us. Do whatever you have to do. Tell him we got a general with us if you have to. I just want that guy to stay out of my face. And so then you fast forward to the actual scene, and Breed is there. You know, he's got the band. He's got the guys all lined up to be um looked at you know reviewed and they're expecting a general there and lee marvin has completely forgotten about this it's like oh yeah <laughs> they're expecting a general here today i don't have a ah, general so that was a cover story okay yeah. yeah boy that band conductor that dude loved his job yeah. right like <laughs> just, how much did that guy love conducting that band yeah <laughs> i don't i don't know if this was the first movie to do it but that sure is a trope that you've seen in a lot of movies with that like the goo- like the goofy band conductor guy kind yeah. of like starting up and they're like stop it and they stop yeah. and they start do 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 i mean i think even they do it in beauty and the beast with lafu or something right like he plays music uh when Gaston's coming to Mary Bell and there's yeah. and they start playing. My guess is it predates this. Like yeah. you maybe don't see it in a lot of serious movies, but it, it I mean, honestly, the gag feels very vaudeville to me. Yeah, so that, I, I probably is. But you've seen that yeah. in so many movies the start up the band and then stop it and then start up. the you know. Right. That's one of the elements of this movie that makes it work. It's not all serious. We're training to go kill Nazis and now we're going to yeah. kill right. the Nazis and we're going to fight the Nazis and we're bad guys and all that sort of stuff. You get the lighthearted moments like the Charles Bronson scene you talked about a moment ago with the free association and, and this scene with the band and reviewing the troops and all that. There, There's a, a lighter edge. And, right. you know, part of that was in the novel that the movie's based on. But also the script was written by a guy named Nunnally Johnson, who who wrote uh, gr- the movie version of The Grapes of Wrath, based on the Steinbeck okay. book. Okay. He, he wrote The Three Faces of Eve. He wrote a, a great Gregory Peck movie called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. This was serious stuff that this guy right. had done before. And this mm-hmm. time... For him to put all this humorous stuff in, none of those other movies has any humor in it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's important, Paul, because we've talked about this before, and I'm going to, again, relate it to another DC comic movie trope it's that whole uh when there was that whole debate over no jokes because dc wanted to be so serious so marvel right. was doing all this action stuff and there was lighthearted, and of course they always interject interject with jokes and especially after guardians of the galaxy the tone shifted and there was a lot more comedy and people were really enjoying all the jokes constantly throughout it and then dc the thing was when uh i think it was batman v superman came out you know, pretty early on, there was that, or it might have been Justice League, but either way, it was that whole no jokes. There was, I think, like, Justice League was the return of the jokes okay. because they 
so, they brought in Joss Whedon. But like for but BBS, yeah, they, went, they literally like DC the studio right. put out a mandate, no jokes. Like that was a and it, internal thing that seriously was was leaked. Yeah, and then and like, the problem is is that the the jokes that they were using would undermine what they would undermine the movie. They were just inserting a joke to insert a joke yeah. where. We, what the dirty dozen like it, it's going back to what we were saying like the Charles Bronson free word association scene is great because it's funny but it serves the story and it serves the character like it 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 shows you who Charles Bronson is in that moment you realize that this guy is really smart and and he knows exactly what this guy's doing and he's gonna he's gonna f with them and 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 it's also really funny but it but it it, they didn't stop the movie to put in a sketch or to throw in a one-liner. Exactly. It's natural. The dialogue is organic. And it's very important because, you know, way outside of the DC stuff, I just wanted to use that example again. But in serious movies, if you don't have a break for levity, if you're going to have two, right. two and a half hours of World War II, it gets very difficult at times to watch. I mean, when they throw... When they throw in little jokes and levity here and there, it, it, it makes it a more entertaining experience. It's a, more of a movie that you want to watch rather than a history lesson. I mean, I'm thinking of movies even like Casablanca, right? Like Casablanca right. is serious subject matter, but Rick is cracking jokes, and there's always moments where there's throwing in levity, but it doesn't undermine yeah. his character. It doesn't turn it into a zany movie. And so I think some of the best movies you know managed to do that i'll do you one one better that uh, talk about super it's not a movie it's a play it turned into a tv movie but uh super serious super sad super important topic but there's a lot of laughs in it much to my amazement was angels in america oh my gosh yeah yeah you know like there there was a lot of humor mixed into this very dark existential drama about the AIDS epidemic, but yeah. there were a lot of laughs along the way. Paul, you were going to say something. I think we jumped on you. The way that they uh, used to do that in movies like this was right before they were all going off to the big battle scene. The night before was the quiet night where we got to personalize <laughs> all the soldiers yeah. or in a Western, all the cowboys, and they told yes. their stories. And you always yeah. had the one guy who brought out the pictures of his kids and you knew oh. that guy was going to die. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so th that's the only way they ever put any lighter, you know, not so serious matter in there. But there weren't really jokes. In this one, there are actually a couple of scenes there where it's a, a comic scene played for yeah. comedy. and. And beautifully directed too. Yeah, absolutely, and and it and it's a nice head fake too because uh, it 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 ends up serving the more serious moments since the jokes don't undermine who the characters are and actually advance the story and the character development. Like it it draws you in in a different way when they start killing these people off. You're like, oh man, not him. I like you know, him. like I wanted that one to make it. I was yeah. just going to like him and. Especially in a movie where the, all the main characters, most of the main characters are prisoners, if you can get if you can get someone to care about these characters, you know you've done your job, right? The screenplay has served these characters well because you're starting to care. You kind of forget about what they've done. You're like, oh, I like them. And I mean, this is a movie after all, too. So let's not forget. It's not like you're trying to say, oh, this. You know, I'm not like current events where you're like, oh, this person lied and committed all these crimes and oh let's just pardon them and oh they're a good person like 
you know, it's a movie and they're killing Nazis, right. like Tom said. So you give them a little leeway and you, and you definitely start to forget whatever. I mean, I can't tell you what each one was in jail for other than Maggot, which he's just awful, right? Right. So so they're, they're at this uh, parachute academy and Breed is like, on their case nonstop. He's, he tells two of his goons to go uh, beat a confession out of one of them when they're in the bathroom. It happens to be the Charles Bronson character. Um, but he wants to figure out what they're doing there. So, so these guys get a hold of him and he tries to fight and get away, but they, they pin him down. He has no dog tags. He won't tell him what, what they're there for. So, you know, to the, to his credit, doesn't give anything away. Uh, and then two of the other guys go into the bathroom. Cause they're like, what, where, what is this guy doing? They're getting ready to leave. And, uh, they end up taking these other guys out, but, but breed is nonstop. Like he is not going to stop until he figures out what is going on. And I, do they ever really go into it? Or we just know that breed and rice have a history. Like they just hate each other. Yeah. I don't, think they ever explain why they, they just okay. they just don't care for each other yeah yeah so and, and i i think it's probably because uh colonel breed is like a straight army like by right. the books like soldier respect and whatever you know and riceman obviously bends the rules and doesn't play by the yeah i mean he's yeah, yeah and it only gets worse from there as far as the stuff that he does then they basically they the Breed and his 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 people take over storm, the training facility. Yeah, take yeah. over the training facility to basically be like, tell us who you are, and then Reisman pops up with a machine yeah, gun. Okay, yeah, I mean, again, movie. I'm not going to think about this too much, but so they. I just think it's weird. I guess. I guess because he's a colonel, he's able to outrank Reisman. Is it's, I mean, so. But but you've got Reisman who's here with his troops and he's on a mission. And just because Colonel Breed feels weird about it, he's able to storm their camp. He brings all of his soldiers, holds holds the dirty dozen at gunpoint and the military police. He's able to confiscate all their weapons again because he outranks them. And so he says, give me all your weapons and all this. But then, okay, so Reisman sees this. He's driving back. And one of the guys at the gate, before the gate, like there's a, I don't know, whatever. There, there's a guy outside the of the checkpoint. Camp. Yeah, yeah. And he says, Hey, you know, they're here. And he sees the, the Colonel's vehicle and all that. So Reisman sneaks in. He, he cuts, I think a wire, the wire fence and sneaks in through the back, climbs up on the roof. He has like a, a an Uzi with an extended clip or something taped to it or whatever. But how is he able to hold the entire Colonel's forces at gunpoint with that gun like couldn't any of them have just turned and shot well but Reisman like I just I don't get it I don't get yeah. how, he, how he I mean I guess he catches him off guard and then and then he and he also has the the vantage point of he's he's above them sure he's higher than sure, they are but so he's got the high ground it didn't he isn't this like a crime that he committed against a superior oh office? absolutely I mean I just yeah. I, I don't know I mean again I'm not gonna think too much into it but as a first time viewer yeah I I'm like totally. I mean, you're not wrong, but I, I also, I mean, I just take it the movie's logic here is just that this mission is so important that well, sure, the if higher it, ups are, are going to let them basically, they're not going to stop the mission. Right? If it so, went up the ranks, of course they yeah. would have been cleared of it because they know what they're doing. But, but literally, what happened? I mean, Breed felt the urge, or he felt that he was able to go in and confiscate their weapons and do all this. But then Reisman gets on the roof with a gun, even though everyone else is held at gunpoint, and he stops them and breeds like, oh, drats, foiled, and they leave. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just It just seemed really yeah. weird that there wasn't... I mean, I think it's also trying to just say that, that they're tougher than the regular soldiers. Sure. The regular soldiers sure. immediately came. Yeah. You know? So, 
but yeah, I mean, if if you think about it too much, it does. It's very silly, credulity. and I guess I just maybe was like, am I am I missing something? But I'm thinking it's just. You're right. It's sir. The scene serves no purpose. It's whatsoever. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I just don't think they should have even done it. They should have yeah. cut it if if they're going to have it be this ridiculous and nonsensical. I, I mean, they should have at least got Ernest Borgnine to like meet them up there and be like, you guys get out of here, right? You know what I mean? Like, if they would have just had an easy solution like that. I will say, I think the scene serves one purpose, even though the logic of it is questionable and, you know, and I won't defend. I do think it serves the purpose that it shows that Reisman will go to the mat for these guys. You know, he he's wanting them to become a team, but he's also part of that team. Yeah, and it does show that. I mean, clearly he was yeah. he had a superior officer at gunpoint willing to, yeah. you know, yeah, totally. No, I agree with that for sure. Um, so they do, you know, they clear them out of there, whatever. And then is this where does... I think this is where we get their... This is where we get the, the, the dance party with the girls, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> That's what we're calling it? We're gonna call it a dance party, okay, which yeah. I was really, which I was really surprised <laughs> at this too, because I'm like, he brought in all these women to have a dance, mm. to have the prom. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. they were <laughs> professionals. Seem, well, some people's prom ended better than others. <laughs> yeah, it just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed really so. Uh, yeah, Reisman ends up getting was it like eight prostitutes? Is what they were able to yeah, round eight up? prostitutes for eleven guys. Yeah. I like, yeah, and so, wisely puts anyway, maggot up in the guard tower. Right. Yes. So so he drops them all off, and yeah, and this is just another time that we see maggot getting frustrated because he's apparently this holy man that is all holier than thou except for when it comes to god telling him to rape women and kill them okay you know he's a holy man because he refers to the women as strumpets yeah (laughs) Yeah, i know i turned to my wife and i was like you just don't hear strumpet enough anymore like we need to bring that back but yeah maggot has this very conflicted relationship with sex to where it disgusts him but he also wants to do it yeah so he's he's mad at them and again more foreshadowing of how he's just so frustrated at the actions of all these sinners and uh so they they end up having their little dance party quote unquote i mean that's literally all you see is that they just start dancing and then the next it is 1967 yeah so (laughs) so the next morning i mean the women are gone you never see them again you never see any aftermath of the dance party it's just whatever presume or infer what you will uh but well yeah you never see them again that's what that's that's one of the selling points of a prostitute yeah (laughs) (laughs) i just mean you don't see them like in the morning like leaving any of them in bed or anything though it's just i just wanted to make a prostitute joke there you go well you know (laughs) happens so rarely on this show you got to take these chances these opportunities when you get them um so anyway uh they is this breed finds out about it though and so once again breed is i mean he is just tra- he's like i'm trying to find to think of an analogy like you know you get different movies where there's their foil that's like constantly right. trying to track down like the main character and get him and he can never do it but he's going to keep trying to do it i mean that is breed is non-stop again trying to take down riceman doesn't know what he's doing but he knows it's no good so he then goes up to the generals and the Ernest Borgnine character. I'll tell you who the I'll, I'll tell you who the equivalent is. Yeah, Greg Marmalard in National Lampoon's Animal House. Yes, exactly. So thank you. I mean, I should have known. I just talked about how Paul could connect anything. Or so Doug, right. or or Niedermeyer. 
maybe from that movie. Yeah, I no, you're right. I mean, exactly. It happens all the time in those college movies where the competing uh, fraternity, the head of the fraternity is trying to take down the other fraternity or the principal of the school, you know? Um, and uh, just like in National Lampoon's, think of uh, Breakfast Club, right? Like, uh, or Ferris Bueller or... Um, you know, any of those where, where it's like you're constantly the authority figure is trying to take down your main character. I mean, it, it yep. time and time again. But I like that the school movies, as you see it over and over. Uh, so Breed ends up going again above Reisman's head. He goes to Ernest Borgnine and the other guy and uh, whoever that is. And he says, hey, he just had prostitutes like this is completely unacceptable. And he tries to get him in trouble. And they're ready to disband this entire operation and send everybody. Yeah, because we know how we know how seriously the military takes sexual assault. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he's they're ready to terminate the entire thing, and this is where um, the uh, George Kennedy character, who's the guy I mentioned from Cool Hand Luke, again one of the greatest movies of all time. I absolutely love that movie. Um, he he ends up uh, he's like the only friend really that Reisman has, and he thinks up this idea. He's like, well the the war games are coming up or whatever he calls them, and uh, it, you know, you could have them compete, right? And and Reisman says that one of my men is worth ten of General or Captain Breed or Colonel Breed's men, uh, and so they agree to have them be a part of these war games. Uh, and as so an, that's, as an independent force, yeah. And this is another part where I I really need to watch it again to really fully understand the whole war games and the colors and everything. I don't really, but the the gist of it is that these. Like what I'm saying is in the middle of World War II, why are they doing world war games? I just don't understand why this would even be happening. I mean it's, it's a form of training. Okay. I, I mean I don't know how realistic it is. I don't know I I, I don't know if they were I, you would think if you were already overseas you'd be pretty trained. That's what I'm up, saying. But, like why are they over but, uh, there doing like I just don't fully understand I, the purpose. I know very little about the military, so I can't speak to whether or not this is accurate or not. I understand and don't disagree with your question <laughs> okay. of it, but it could also be totally accurate. I have I have no idea. The reason they're doing oh, it, I Kevin, mean, is because Nona Lee Johnson put it in the script. Okay, yes. well, there you go. Okay, <laughs> so again, and I'm not trying to, I, I liked the movie, I'm not trying to dismiss it, but as a first-time watcher, and I think sometimes... I will, also, I will also say this is a bit of a trope itself. Like, you see this uh, this pop-up in movies pretty, pretty frequently in military movies where... The ragtag bunch is up, has their back against the wall, and then there's this big war games. And if they can win the war games, then they'll get out of trouble or they'll move on to the next thing. Okay, or so and also Billy Madison, and also in the uh, movie um, Heavyweights, and in like Stripes. oh I'm, yeah, camp movies do it, school movies do it. Uh, totally, you're gonna get I think... kicked out of school, but if you win the academic decathlon, right. I mean, th- you're right. It's a total trope. Of yeah, it. like and like I mean, I think there's an Abbott and Costello movie where they do this. I'm pretty sure there's a Francis the Talking Mule movie <laughs> yeah. where they they have to win the war games. There's, uh, so, I believe that this is the the final act of Private Benjamin, if memory serves. Um, you know when uh, where. So uh, the Goldie Hawn movie where Goldie Hawn joins the army. And, well, it's totally the last act of Stripes. Yeah, Stripes does it. Like, yeah. or not the not the last act because the last act they're in Germany. But but the the last act of the first half of the movie that 
the movie divides weird yeah. stripes. But, this, but so, but yeah. So you know, again, so just for listeners and people like Paul and Tom who have watched this movie throughout their lives and love this movie, I'm not trying to hate on it. I'm not trying to say it's bad. Again, I enjoyed the movie, but I also think it's interesting to get a perspective from a first time viewer that has these questions, right? Because yeah, I don't have nostalgia attached to it. I'm literally just watching the movie, and so. For the first time, I still don't fully understand <laughs> what they did. I just know that they basically they pre- they pretend to be one side of the of of one team, and then they pretend to be the other team, and then they pretend to be actually injured so they can infiltrate the breeds camp and then take him hostage, and then that's how they win. Yeah, so, it's it's follow. You can follow it for sure, whether you understand yeah. it, like you said. If you you don't, I can follow it. I just don't really fully understand what they did, like how they achieved it. But yeah. that's again in a good movie with a good script. I mean, this happens time and time again when we watch whether it's sports movies or other military movies. You can't if if you said, "Hey, describe this tactic or the technical stuff." You couldn't do it, but you also right. very easily understood that they tricked the other team and won. And so they do their job. Um so they 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 yeah, they disguise themselves as the other forces. They capture a an ambulance. They put on their red armbands and pretend to be their soldiers uh for Colonel Breed's team. Uh they infiltrate, they say they they blow up a, a jeep or whatever, and they say, "Hey, we've got an injured man," and they bring them into Colonel Breed's uh, base for this war game. Uh, and then the other guys take the ambulance, ride in, and then bust out of there with their guns and and hold Colonel Breed at gunpoint. Whatever they say, we won the game. And Ernest Borgnine, there among that, and he figures out what they're doing and smirks at it. And Ernest yeah. Borgnine's kind of like on, like he's not Reisman's friend like he doesn't totally support him but he also kind of likes him so like he's on the yeah. fence where he you know he's kind of in the middle there between the two sides he's like a he's like a i took him as he's like a good boss like he yeah. he follows the rules and he's gotten to where he is but he also understands Reisman's frustration yeah. but at the end of the day he's he's still going to do what his bosses tell him to do yeah. but if rice if Reisman can get it done in a different way he's cool with it but he's also not going to go down for him. Yep. Like he'll throw him under the bus in a heartbeat. Exactly. So, I mean, like like he said he could do it. Reisman's men were able to capture Colonel Breeds even though they were undermanned and and undertrained, uh they were able to do it. Uh so they go ahead and they put Project Amnesty back on the table and they are ready to they're ready to do the mission, right? Like they've they've got to go do it. It's there's going to be this big party at this castle in France, so they have to parachute in there. Uh, they end up losing one of the guys again. I couldn't tell you which one. Does anyone? Oh, know I can tell Trini you. Trini Lopez. I can tell you. Trini, oh, is it? It's Trini Lopez, and there's a great story about this. There is a great okay, story go attached. For it. Yeah, Trini Lopez was a popular folk singer of the early '60s. He had uh, hits with the, like uh, "If I Had a Hammer," lemon, and, uh, "Under the Lemon Tree." Lemon right? Tree was one of his. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah. Okay, uh, and so. Um, he, he was invited to do this movie, and he told his agent, I don't want to do a war movie. And the agent said, look who's in this. Go do this. It'll be good for you. And so he goes off and does it. And then the production falls behind, like not a couple of days, but weeks behind, a month behind, six, seven weeks behind. And they're shooting in England, and Trini Lopez, on one of the nights that he's not working, goes to have dinner with Frank Sinatra in London. And Frank Sinatra says, you're still making that movie? I can't, I, I, you're, you're, you're losing momentum in your singing career. 
you, you need to get out of this movie and get back on the road and, and go back to recording and doing your thing. And Trini Lopez says, well, I can't just walk away from this. And, and Sinatra says, they hired you for a certain amount of time and they've gone over it. So you're not walking away from it. You're saying, I have other things to do and I'm going to go do that. And so the wow. next day, the next day, his agent calls Robert Aldrich, the director, and says, Trini's not coming back. And so the very next scene they're shooting is the one where they paratrooped in, uh, you know, uh, parachuted yeah. in to Germany. And uh, it falls to, uh, I think it's Jim Brown to come over and tell everybody else, you know, uh, Martinez or whatever his name is, Jimenez, whatever his name was, uh, he's in a tree. He broke his neck. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they just decided, oh, you're not coming back? Well, your character's dead. And we're going to yeah. give the other small parts that he was doing to other people. I mean, it's easy solution. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's hilarious. I, I did not read about that story, but I mean, you definitely see both sides. I mean, if you're contractually obligated, I mean, you know, you, you did your part. Uh, I don't think it's maybe the most professional thing to do, but he also had other stuff to do. So, I mean, they, I don't think it's unprofessional. I mean, they, they, they hired you for a certain amount of time and he's got other commitments. So, I mean, I, that, I think that's fair. I maybe used the wrong wording. What I meant was, Sometimes projects go over and it's not sure. out of malice and you yeah. you play nice and you keep getting work. I just meant I I don't know that it was necessarily like the nice thing to do, but I understand right. his Hey, decision. Jim Brown wanted to stay his... in the movie so much even though it was going over that he quit his football yeah. career. Right? Well, different strokes. But that is You don't age but you don't age out of being a singer. You right. age out of being a football yeah, player. Yeah, but let's look yeah. back in history. Trini Lopez not considered one of the greatest football players ever. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, so I, when they when they talk about how he died of the tree, all I can think about is uh, uh, a Simpsons reference for for Kevin. What's uh, Poochie has returned to his home planet. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is the exact same thing where they just yeah we're we're gonna kill off Poochie. I love that. Yeah. Or Homer <laughs> thinks he's in the episode and then he watches it and they've just killed him off. The other yeah. reference to that would be um, McLean yes. Stevenson saying I'm gonna leave Mesh. Okay, Henry Blake's dead. You can't come back. Well, they, yeah. Well, right. And I mean I'm gonna keep doing it just because we already mentioned it and it's the. I think it's the most close comparison there is, but in Suicide Squad, I have to imagine that Slipknot dying is a is an homage to this. The character Slipknot, who's in like God, I remember next to nothing about that movie, so I will assume that you're correct. <laughs> but he's the um, he's the character that uh, he decides that they don't believe them that if they leave that they'll kill them. I mean, it's the same thing like where uh, Reisman says, Hey, if you leave, you're not yeah. going to get a trial where I'm going to shoot you in the back of the head or whatever. Um, they have a device implanted. And so Slipknot tries to run away and they just blow his head up or whatever. And oh, he okay. dies, but yeah, you don't expect sounds... him to. It's toward like, it's right. the beginning of the mission where this is the beginning right. of the actual mission and he just dies. So I think it's got to be kind of a, anyway, gotcha. That would make sense. They drop in there. Uh, we've got only 11 of them left now. Um, they, I mean, this is the big moment. This is like the last 30 minutes of the movie. And I thought, this is really good uh you have yeah. you have the whole castle full of german officers and their wives slash prostitutes slash i mean i don't know the relations but it's a party it's a party german officers and their women and uh, they have to infiltrate so you've got guys uh 
Donald Sutherland is the lookout out front. Uh, you know, they take they end up taking out a few soldiers. They get their uniforms and uh, they they have a lookout. They've got a guy on the roof that's trying to break in. Um, Reisman and Charles Bronson infiltrate and they're actually walking around the party. Uh, Charles Bronson can speak German, so he's able to translate. I mean, he's not great at it, but he knows enough to be dangerous. Get away with it. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying, you know, they basically infiltrate, mingle, try to distract people. They end up securing a room and uh, they're trying to break, you know, so they're all at different parts of this castle as they're trying to break in. Um, and basically what it comes down to is maggot ends up getting in there uh, and he finds a woman and he does his thing that he does apparently where he, he holds this woman at knife point, but he's getting like great pleasure out of, out of like tormenting her tormenting her yeah and then he ends up wanting her to scream so that they'll he'll screw up the entire mission which she ends up doing and he has this really sadistic laugh and like they start laughing with one another and then he ends up knifing her and killing her afterwards it's he's he's just a despicable character who you hate and you go oh man i hope he gets gunned down soon and then he gets gunned down soon. By so, Jim Brown. Yes. By Jim Brown. I mean, yeah, he comes out and like, I like how he didn't necessarily shoot him in the back because they have Telly Savalas turn ever so because you don't want it to be like a cowardly thing. So Telly Savalas kind of turns at Jim Brown and he just mows him down. He lets him have it. So yeah, really. But even then, I wouldn't necessarily consider it a cowardly thing because like this guy's crazy and is going to do damage and you need to take oh, him out yeah so it's not cowardly it's not the even. same as just he's running away and you shoot him no but, it was but i just but you're right they they still give him that yes they get yeah. i i just like it that you don't have him be like oh we got to take this guy out from behind or whatever they make him right. turn and face him and he guns him down so they get rid of him but now at this point the place is in frenzy. Uh, the, all the high-ranking officers, they say, anyone above whatever rank, go down to the basement. And so they end up taking their dates, and they all scurry down to the basement. And Charles Bronson and uh, Lee Marvin end up uh, trapping all of them down there. They they go in behind, and they shut the doors, and they bar them and barricade them. There's a couple different doors. And so all those people are trapped down there, and uh, they eventually... They, they, oh, they call for the Nazis end up calling for backup. And so they're on their way. Um, they take out a radio tower, but it must not have been in time because we eventually see their forces coming in and kind of trapping, uh, pinning down the dirty dozen in between them and the castle. Um, but they, it's a big firefight from this point on. I mean, you've got our guys with machine guns shooting down the Nazis. You have, um, you have uh, them trying to, get all their grenades together and their plan is which i messaged tom when i saw this because i'm like holy crap they did not hold back and of course it's nazis so you don't feel sorry for them but they're not just like yeah we're gonna blow this place up they're like <laughs> they douse they're them like, in bring gas. the gasoline <laughs> so yeah. so they so uh reisman says hey everyone bring all your your grenades in and so they all reconvene at the at the castle grounds and so their plan is to open up all the air ducts and drop in as many grenades as they can. Then they say, bring all the gasoline, which even the dirty dozen is like, are you, but are you sure? And he's like, yes, bring the gasoline. They dump gasoline all over the grenades and all over the Nazis who are like, Hey, let us out. And they see grenades falling down the vents. They're trying to like pull them out. Meanwhile, they're getting soaked with gasoline. Do you know the story behind this scene? No. no. Is this real? Uh, Robert. Or, or the story of the movie. Robert Aldrich, the director, was told by the studio that this scene had to come out, that it was the Dirty Dozen going too far, that yes, it's Nazis, but 
there are women down there and you can't have them putting gasoline in and all of the explosives. It's just, it's just too horrible. And Aldrich looked at them and said, it's war. War is not pretty. And they said, look, if you take this scene out, yeah. you're going to win the Academy Award for Best Director. That's how good we think this movie is. But you've got to take this scene out. And Robert Aldrich said, I don't care about awards. I'm out to make the best movie I can. And this scene is important for this movie. And they left it in. Wow. I mean, because th- this is a... They didn't want him to take out the whole scene. They, they, they just... But they want. They definitely wanted to get rid of the gas part da- of the scene. Dousing the were... people with gasoline yeah. is just... A, I mean, this is... A, that's, that's straight up war crimes, right? I mean, you're murdering all those other non... You know what I mean? Like, they're not... Yeah. The, the women that are in there aren't part of the nazi forces and i'm not saying they're good people association bubble i'm not arguing that but they they are not military they are just women that are their dates or whatever so yeah the fact they doused with them with gasoline not just blew them up but they also burnt to death i mean that's what struck me is why i had to message tom and i'm like yeah. holy crap they're not playing but around. you got to realize that aldrich was making a bigger point here yeah and he argued that this is really an anti-war movie. Mm-hmm. And remember, this was coming out in 1967, which is the year of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. Sure. And when America was really starting to turn against the Vietnam War, and there were rallies across the United States and a huge one on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so mm-hmm. what he was saying is, look, we do this to the Vietnamese. We pour napalm on them. If you think this is too horrible, we're still doing this. 30 plus years later or 20 plus years later. Okay. So that was part of what Aldrich wanted to say in this movie. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And like you said, I mean, he wanted to make the best movie he could. Yep. He sure did make a popular movie, but that's, that's what happens. I mean, basically the dirty dozen, I mean, we're losing them left and right. There's only a handful of them left at this point. They steal a tank. Uh, Reisman says to, to Jim Brown's character, he says, drop the grenades in one, two, three, four down the, the air ducts uh, and then run away. You know, they're going to explode and you got to be on this truck and we got to get out of here. Uh, so I love how they get <laughs> They give Jim Brown something football. Oh, right. Do. It's like running with the ball. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. it is. The, oh. the first time I saw this movie as a kid, that's exactly what I thought, Tom. Of course, the <laughs> NFL player is going to have to run. It's not coincidence. Right. I mean, it's it, yeah. and it doesn't come off as ridiculous or anything, but it's a really nice nod. I think it, it does make sense in context. It's, it's it doesn't it's not as contrived as it as it could be or as it maybe even sounds. Right. But it is it's like. Really? Yeah, they do. It. Yeah. Let's see, who are we going to get to have run? Jim Brown or Donald Sutherland? Right. Right. <laughs> well, it's not going to be Donald Sutherland, that's for sure. Um, at this point, he gets shot. He's one of the first to die uh, when he's standing yeah. guard. Yeah. One of the one of the other soldiers ends up taking him out. But any- first to die on camera. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, there's only a few of them left. Jim Brown ends up dropping their grenades. He accomplishes the mission, but he is shot down. Meanwhile, um, so they lose him, and uh, a, f- a couple of them escape on this truck oh actually yeah it's a few of them at this point because franco is on the truck and they're driving away and he starts celebrating but it's a little bit too early because this is when we lose him right isn't franco the one that's gunned down or is it another guy yeah no you're right franco okay so yeah so they're celebrating and and lee marvin's even like hey don't don't celebrate till we're out of here and uh the place blows up but unfortunately franco is gunned down and uh it's just uh, Reisman and the Charles Bronson character that escape, uh, and then they kind of just—I mean—and Bowerman, yeah, oh, Bowerman, that's, that's, that's right, Bowerman. character. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yep. 
Um, and so that's kind of just how it ends. Though. I mean, they accomplish the mission. You see that whole castle full of Nazis was blown up. The three of them escape and uh, they do like, is it, er, is it Ernest Borgnine or who is it? There's like a narration, right? Someone's talking. Yeah. Is it Borgnine? Yeah. I think, was it Borgnine at the end? I think because yeah. it, 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 boy, his voice sounded really. That's why I was questioning because I thought it was I, I think but... it was, remember the, there's, there's another like Colonel or Major General there Robert, in that Robert room. Weber. Yeah, I think it's him. Okay, but does Borgnine visit them? Who someone visits them, yeah. right? Okay, Borgnine goes to see them in the hospital. So Borgnine, yeah, he visits in, them yeah. and then tell they talk about you know your senses commuted or whatever. Good job, men. Yeah, kind of gives them a little pat on the back, and then the narration ends up telling you who's probably the other guy, and they say all their crimes were commuted. The ones that lived are back to their rank that was before, and all the men that died, their families know that they died in the line of of duty, and uh, that's how it ends. Yeah. Yeah, can I give you two little other historical you things? You can about give us movie? as many as you want. Paul. Absolutely. Okay, John Cassavetes, who plays Victor Franco, mm-hmm. at the time this movie was made, he had emerged as essentially the leader of the independent movie market. Yeah. Okay. Um, he basically invented art house cinema. Yeah. yeah. Everything else had been the studio system before this, and he went off and made his own movies. Um, he didn't write them all, but he directed them, and he became famous for some that he made with Peter Falk. And with uh, Cassavetti's wife, Gina Rollins, mm-hmm. uh, they, they made a movie in 1970 called Husbands in 74 called A Woman Under the Influence, which is an amazing movie. A Woman Under the Influence is like you will be stunned that that movie was made in 1974. I mean, it's I mean, people talk a lot now about like the mumblecore movies yeah. and how like it's really designed to look slice of life and like you're just like they just set up a camera in a living room and these are real honest to god people and like that's what a woman under the and she won an oscar for it yeah. it it's it's a an amazing gut punch of a movie yeah. and and yeah it just not enough good things can be said about that and movie. so in 67 when they made the dirty dozen they came to him and offered him the movie he said i don't want to do that i want to go make my own little movies and then his agent said to him, you need money Here's to make money little to do movies that. too. Yeah. So here, do this, get some money, get your name out there. It's a great part that you'll be perfect in. And then you'll be able to do whatever you want. And so he did it. And then from then on, he did whatever he wanted. Well, then, yeah. but I mean. And he was nominated for an Oscar for this role. Right? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, the film was nominated. Was it for three Oscars and won one for sound yeah. editing? Yeah. And and just real quick talking about make like the money thing, like him and Peter Falk, like that's what Peter Falk did with Columbo. Yeah. He would take this Columbo money and and help finance these Cassavetes films and Cassavetes he pops up on Columbo and as an actor, he directs multiple episodes. Like they you know, he was he was definitely one of those guys that was would be like, Okay, I'll go take this corporate work, the big studio stuff. And then I'll finance my passion project. He kind of invented that. He invented that, yeah. The the other thing I was going to mention is this director who I mentioned a couple of times, Robert Aldrich. You know, we were talking at the beginning of this, Kevin, about how did you feel about the guys in the Shawshank Redemption. Robert Aldrich also directed the original Burt Reynolds version of The Longest Yard. Yeah, that's right. Which is another one where you end up rooting for these prisoners prisoners. who had really done some bad things in their lives. but, But they're up against these brutal guards and, you know, you're rooting for Burt Reynolds' side. Um, and I thought he did a really good good job with that. He also made a, a seldom-seen comedy 
that Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford starred in called The Frisco Kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, English. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Gene Wilder plays a Polish rabbi who comes to America to take <laughs> over a congregation in San Francisco, but he comes by boat because it's in the 18th, 19th century, and he lands in New York, and he has to get all the way across the country, and he has no idea how big America is and how he's going to do that. <laughs> and he runs into all sorts of trouble until he, he runs across this cowboy who's played by Harrison Ford, and it's kind of like, from that moment on, a buddy picture until the end. It's called a Fris The Frisco Kid. Pretty funny movie. And at the other end of the spectrum he also directed betty davis and joan crawford yeah. in whatever happened to baby jane hmm. which if you saw the movie feud uh the miniseries on fx a couple years ago yeah. that's a big part of that in that movie's a blast he made one other movie that i have a personal connection to a world war ii movie called attack which is not a good movie but <laughs> when the movie was released in the 50s my father was working for a company called National Screen Service, which made trailers for movies. Okay. And at one point, they get this movie in, and it has a horrible, unmarketable name, they've decided. I mean, they also did the marketing for the movies. And so they had a contest in the office. They let everybody put names in a hat for what the name of the movie should be, and whoever chose the name that became the name of the movie would get, I don't know, like a free dinner on the town. Yeah. And my my dad was the one who came up with attack exclamation point. No way. <laughs> and my dad told us a story when I was young and he said, I thought it was a stupid movie and all they do in the movie is talk about going on the attack. So I put out attack. <laughs> wow, that is hilarious. That's great. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, that was directed great. by Robert Aldrich. So, you know, I I like this movie. I think uh, you know, if we just want to give our our uh, thoughts about the movie, um for a first time watch, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think there was a good mixture of action and the the comedy, like we talked about. They really have a good. Uh, Aldrich has a really good uh, grasp of how to balance those. Um, I think they did a really good job uh, taking characters that otherwise you would probably or, or should probably hate and uh, making some of them likable. And uh, especially once it gets to that last 30 minutes because of the character development, because you've gotten to know, th know them and care about them, uh, the deaths are meaningful and it's good action. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's a good one. So before we wrap up, I do this with some of these uh, older movies. I like to put them in context to see what came out around them. So the top 10 grossing movies of 1967. Okay. So uh, I have coming in at number 10, Camelot. Uh, number nine, The Jungle Book. Number eight, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, number seven, You Only Live Twice. Number six, To Sir With Love. Number five, Valley of the Dolls. And then at number four, The Dirty Dozen, which made about $20 million on a $5.5 million budget. And then uh, coming in at number three, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, number two, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And at number one, The Graduate. And it made and The Graduate, according to this, I mean, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner made $25 million. The Graduate made $43 million. Oh, my gosh. Which is kind of the beginning of the shift yeah. in Hollywood yep. from these kind of movies to, to, you know, to more of the auteur driven film Jeez, that is yeah unbelievable yeah yeah so 
Um, so anyway, that's it uh, for this one. Coming up on the next one, we will tackle the Dirty Dozen, the next mission, the nothing says quality like made for TV. <laughs> um, so let's go around the virtual table and everyone can say where to find them. This is Paul. You can find me on my website, harrisonline.com. This is Kevin. You can follow me on Twitter at Kevin R. Brackett. And this is Tom. You can follow me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. Find the show online, facebook.com slash real spoilers. While you're there, like the page, join the group. And of course, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash real spoilers. So Again, that's it for this one. Coming up on the next one, we will tackle Dirty Dozen, the next mission. Until then, Private Crazy steps on a landmine. Part of the film's action concerns the bone-crushing combat training of the prisoners. It takes two months to shoot, but director Robert Aldrich gets what he's looking for. Action! Marvin and the other actors will master judo and commando techniques for killing quickly and silently. Well, I'm shoving you. Now, come on. Let me have it. Don't push me. Give it to me, Posey. I'm going to shove you right through the wall. I don't don't like to be pushed. Posey, what a name for a guy like you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.